Welcome to The Right, guys. We have a very exciting guest today, uh, Maria Konnikova, writer, poker player, poker ambassador. Uh, we're so happy to have her today joining us. Welcome from New York, Maria. Thank you, Thank you guys so much for having me. Marley in the UK and Jamie in Vegas. I think between the three of us, we, we cover a number of time zones. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. We're all over the place. Um, of course, uh, Maria's book is coming out, not sure exactly when this pod will be released, but it'll be very uh, shortly. Um, so we have to talk a lot about that, but we want to kind of start off just getting like an idea of who you are and like, you know, of course you're a writer in New York and we're so interested in that and we want to hear more about that to start. Sure, sure. Um, so as I started telling you um, before we started recording, I had always wanted to be a writer. And I don't actually remember this. My memory is not that good. Um, but I have been told by my family that I announced over dinner that I was going to be a writer when I grew up when I was about five or six years old. Um, I do remember writing my first book. Um, it was in first grade. And do you guys remember trolls, like the little troll dolls with like yep. crazy like, blue hair and stuff? So those were really, really popular. Um, so I decided that they were going to be the star of my book. Um, so the book was about trolls, but I couldn't draw. I still can't draw. Like I can't draw a stick figure. I am just hopeless. People are like, draw a line. I'm like, oh, <laughs> no artistic ability, zero. Um, so I enlisted another girl in my class to do the drawings for me because she was a good she was a good illustrator. So she drew the trolls and I wrote the story. Um, and you know, it, and that was my first, uh, New York times bestseller. You know, it really <laughs> it just, it just took off, you know, hit the charts and, um, the rest yeah. is history. Um, no, seriously though, like it was something that I always loved and just did all the time. I wrote a play when I was in fourth grade. I spent months wow. on it. It was so hard to do. And then we performed it as a class. And I think it took about nine minutes from start to finish. <laughs> and I didn't realize um, just how little time it was going to take because I'd written this magnum opus play. Uh, <laughs> wow. Then I stopped writing. And then I actually, I started I was reading all of these amazing books as I got older and I thought, holy shit, like I can't do this. Why bother? Like I should do something practical. You know, I should, I should be a lawyer. Um, I, I never took the LSAT, but I did take an LSAT prep course in college. <laughs> and you, you dodged a bullet. Like I, I decided to actually be a lawyer, spent three years of my life, 150 K in student loans, worked for three years and was like, this is awful. So you you not following through saved you so much time and money, like, man. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Um, but yeah, I just decided, why bother? I'm not going to write. But it kept, I kept coming back to it. Like, I needed to write. You know, it was something that I, I missed. Like, I felt really empty about without it. I didn't even realize it. And so in college, I was studying psychology. I was studying um, international relations and all of these other things. And I really missed writing. So I decided to... Um, just kind of in secret, not telling anyone, apply to this creative writing workshop, this fiction workshop. And I didn't want to tell anyone because tons of people applied and they would they were tiny. You know, a workshop would take like eight people. Um, and so most people didn't get in and I didn't want anyone asking me and I didn't want to have to tell people if I didn't get in. Um, so I wrote a, you know, I wrote a short story and submitted it and all this and I got in. Um, and wow. I ended up that just about midway through college, it just changed my college trajectory. Um, I ended up graduating with both a thesis that was kind of normal about psychology and politics. And then I also had a fiction portfolio. And I asked um, one of my, my kind of fiction professor, uh, my advisor, near the end of college, I said, I really want to do this tell me the truth. You know, I don't have any money. Um, I don't have any family money. <laughs> um, do I have a shot? Should I try? And she said, yes. And that just, that was what I needed to hear. Um, so then I moved to New York with no 
real plans other than I want to write. And I was just so naive. Like it's a, it's a really, it's a world where people had internships at all these magazines, people had connections, people knew people. I didn't know any of that. You know, I didn't know anyone. I didn't know how it was done. I could never afford an internship because I actually needed to work and make money um, during the summers. So, you know, I had great jobs. I worked and did a lot of cool stuff, but I never had an internship at a magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think I went through about five jobs when I just graduated from college. Um, I was a copywriter at an ad agency, actually at two different ad agencies. I hated it. Um, it had writer in the title. So I figured, oh, creative, I get to write. And then they're like, fix this coffee, on, fix this caption on the Coca-Cola ad. Now, what about the fine print and the disclaimers? And I was like, oh my God, this is terrible. I do not like this. Um, so, so that, that, uh, did not go well. I was a bartender. Then I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to bartend so that I can write. I made a lot of money and it was a lot of fun, but it was exhausting. And I wasn't writing because in New York, last calls 4 a.m. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> by the time you clean up, close down, get the last customers out of there, get home, it's like six in the morning. Yeah. And then you sleep through the day and it's time to go back to the bar and open up again. Mm-hmm. So I met a lot of cool people and I loved, you know, I loved it for that. But, um, I, I didn't last long. So that didn't work. Um, and I just kept, you know, drifting in and out of different things. Eventually settled in television um, and worked in television for two years. And that was really exciting and kind of a, a good world for me in some respects, but not in others. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't the most nurturing environment. Um, and I also had zero time for myself. It was a 24-7 job. Um, So I had to be on call always, weekends, nights, just, it was a nightly television show and it was just something where you had to, you were always expected to be on, on. And so I was a show you were like writing. I was a, I was a producer. Okay. Producer. Yeah. Um, But it was a, because it was a talk show as a producer, you, um, you write the scripts too. Mm -hmm. There were no designated writers. Okay. Um, Um, and so I decided I had to leave, um, for a lot of different reasons. Um, and I wanted to do something that would let me write. And so I decided to go to grad school actually. Um, and I was deciding because I I love psychology. I was like, oh, you know, maybe I can learn more about this. And I was deciding between going to grad school or to an MFA, a master in fine arts. I was like, well, one pays me the other one. I'm going to have lots of student debt. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Um, Let me go into this PhD program. So I did that um, and started writing in like in earnest while I was in grad school because suddenly I had a stipend. It wasn't a lot of money, um, but you know, it was something. Mm -hmm. I had health insurance and I was able to, and I knew I didn't want to go into academia. So I didn't care about publications. Like Mm -hmm. I could just put that aside. And instead I started actually freelancing um, and doing kind of my first magazine pieces, my first you know newspaper pieces, um, and got very very lucky. That one piece that I wrote um, about Sherlock Holmes ended up striking like some sort of chord, and people really liked it, and it got a lot of viewership and a lot of readers. And I started rereading the Sherlock Holmes stories and was like, oh my God, this is a book. This is amazing. There's so much about, there's so much psychology here. Um, So I went on a leave of absence while I was in grad school to write my first book, Mastermind. Um, And it ended up coming out at a moment where Sherlock Holmes had this like renaissance. Um, The show Sherlock came out on BBC. Mm -hmm. Um, Have you guys seen it? No. No. I think it's really good. It's really good. You should watch it. It's with Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and that was coming out. Then Elementary came out. Um, the Sherlock movies were coming out. This is just total coincidence, though. You had Total coincidence. People were like, oh, she's riding the Sherlock Holmes bandwagon. I was like, guys, do you know when I wrote this book? How long it like, takes to write a yeah, book? I, I sold this multiple years ago. Yeah. Uh, but I got very lucky that it just hit this moment really well. And so it ended up becoming a New York Times bestseller. And that kind of, that enabled me to write full time. That's the the luck thing though, like you were unlucky to not have a bunch of family money behind you. I think a lot of people who are able to take the shot know that they have a safety net 
to catch yeah. them. And so you didn't get the luck from that part of your life. And then you got the luck from this like amazing serendipitous timing yeah. and that like, that's cool. So I don't, I feel like a lot of, and like, I'm generalizing a lot, but I feel like a lot of women will be like, I'm so lucky this, I'm so lucky that. And it's like, well, I don't know. You put yourself in the right place at the right time. And that's like, a lot of people just wouldn't have even taken the shot without having like money behind them or something to fall back on. Sure. That's true. Um, I think, and I think I didn't take the shot for a long time, but then I just, I realized I had to, it was something that like I needed to do for myself and I knew I just wouldn't be satisfied. And I figured, you know what? I don't have that safety net, but I'm incredibly lucky that I have a really good family, that I have parents who love me, that worst case scenarios, you know, if shit hits the fan and this all goes south and I have no job and no way of making money, I can move home for, mm-hmm. for a little while and figure stuff out. You know, yeah. we don't have money, but they're always happy to see me. And I, you know, mm-hmm. and not everyone has that. Not everyone has kind of that family stability. Um, and not everyone even has that to turn back on. So I don't underestimate it. You know, I don't underestimate how lucky I am to have had kind of the emotional support and also parents who believed in me, who said, go for it, mm-hmm. you know, take, take this shot. You know, this is, do it. This is why we left the Soviet Union because I was born in in Russia when it was still the Soviet Union. And, um, you know, they said, do it. You know, you're here so that you can do whatever you want to do rather than than have to, you know, be a lawyer Mm -hmm. or a doctor. I mean, it helps that my sister is a doctor. So that kind of, and she's, she's older. So she, she checked (laughs) all the boxes. (laughs) They're just like, okay, we're comfortable with our parenting because one has like knocked it out of the park already. And then like Maria can take this lottery ticket and try. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. My sister's an MD PhD. She's a, she's a neonatologist. Yeah. She's saving babies lives and also curing cancer. So like, wow. She, (laughs) (laughs) um I'm sorry I was gonna ask about you know your professor kind of encouraging you and getting into classic early on like I often think you know with a lot of things I try whether it be you know vlogging or whatever poker even I kind of need that early success and that early encouragement otherwise I really kind of don't stay I I need that did Mm -hmm. you feel do you feel like if you didn't have that kind of encouragement or whatever early on you kind of would have left it or you would have just had that feeling inside you needed to go for it? I think with writing, I would have eventually done it anyway. Um, I think it was really useful to have that encouragement, but it was one of these things that I found that I couldn't not write. You know, even when I wasn't writing, I was still writing um, and it was an outlet that I needed. Um, And whenever I didn't do it, it, I felt like something was missing. And so I think that eventually I would have gotten there, but I don't know. I think, I don't know if the path would have been the same. Um, I don't actually know kind of how, how that would have looked because it's great to have early encouragement. It's great, you know, and it's great to have someone who's not your mom say, this is great. You have some talent. (laughs) You know, I love you mom, but, (laughs) but I don't believe you. She's going to love, like, if you wrote a piece of garbage, she'd still be like, Maria, this is excellent. Like, you yes. know, good parents will like support you through anything. But exactly. yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> I, I feel like um, Marley has vlogs. Like, I feel like that's her right brain activity. When, when she puts poker down, she does vlogs. Like, I enjoy writing jokes on Twitter. And I feel like if you took those things away, I would feel like something's missing too. Even though it's like a thing, think about it like half an hour a day. It still yeah. is like it energizes that side of your brain, and it without it, I do feel like unfulfilled, even though it's some tiny thing. I think that's I think that's so important. I mean, one of the things that I've learned, and all of the people who I really admire, who've become kind of mentors throughout my life, they all have a lot of curiosities and interests. They're not unifocused you know they're not people who are like this is what I do and I do it 24 7 and anything else is a distraction they are all people who think oh you have a passion for this you have an interest in that follow it do it you know it will only make you bigger and better and you have no idea I mean I think the the thing that some people 
don't realize, and I think we'd all be better if we realized it is, you just have no idea what's going to end up being quote unquote useful. I mean, I hate that. I hate that idea. I hate what's happening to school curriculums where they're like, oh, we're not going to be teaching fiction anymore because fiction isn't useful. We're only going to teach nonfiction. I'm like, what are you doing? Fiction teaches people how to think and how to feel. Useful. What does that even mean? Are we looking at it in a capitalist way? Like, can it make money? Because I don't like... I don't think that that is a measure of a good life, how much money Absolutely. you make and the things you learn. Absolutely. And you know, something that um, my mom actually told me very early on is if you do what you love and really kind of dedicate yourself to something that you love and you do it for the right reasons and you're motivated by the right things, you're actually going to earn money at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Someone's going to pay you to do it because you know you will end up doing it well. Yeah. because you love it. And if you do something just for the money, you're probably not going to end up nearly as successful because you're not going to be happy. You're mm-hmm. not going to be as motivated and you'll burn out um, and you won't be as successful. So I think it's so important to be motivated by the right things. It's it's funny, you know, obviously I started playing poker professionally at some point in this journey, which I never could have predicted. But one of the things that Eric Seidel just always stressed to me, which I think is one of the reasons why I came to really love the game and kind of admire so many aspects of it, is that it's not about the money. That's not why he plays. You know, it's about the process. It's about the decision. It's become, it's about making the right decisions and becoming better at making good decisions and the money will come. But if you're motivated just by the money, you're not going to make the right decisions and you're actually probably going to burn out um, and not be a good poker player at the end of the day, if that's the only thing. Great example. He's a great example of, um, of basically like the slow burn through his whole career. Like he's been good forever. There were people who, when the money was like free flowing and there was like a lot of fish in the game and you could make it easily certain pros would dominate. And then they've kind of like withered away. I feel like Eric has been at the highest level of poker for like decades now. And that speaks to your point that he loves the game and he, he like enjoys the process of learning and he hasn't been like, he hasn't let that get oh, I had all the success when the money was super easy. And, you know, they kind of, I think some people kind of resent the fact that poker got harder and he's just not one of them. Like when I'm watching mm-hmm. him play a million dollar buy-in or what was the one, he, he got really deep in one of the um, the high rollers recently. Yeah. And I was just thinking uh, how crazy it is that someone of his age has been like great when he was young. And then also is keeping up with these guys who are like 30 and study every waking minute of the day. Yep. Yep. And I think some of the one of the reasons he's so good is he has so many different interests and he's able to bring so many parts of his brain to bear. And so he notices more and he's able to adjust better and see things other people don't see because he doesn't study 24 seven. It's funny, like they have their edge because they study 24 seven, but who, where will they be in 10 years? Maybe some of them will be around, but I'm guessing a lot of them won't be. Um, And he kind of maintains it because he's constantly kind of evolving and adjusting and doing all of that. Absolutely. Um, I think how, that's... how did you guys get how, how did you guys get that mentor mentee relationship? I feel like he is not he's not super outgoing. Like he uh, his Twitter is really funny and like he, he's a he's good hilarious. Interview, but he's not the person that would like seek out something like that. How did that come about? <laughs> well, I'm a journalist, um, so I'm very very used to tracking down sources and cold calling them and convincing <laughs> them to speak to me even when they want nothing to do with me. <laughs> My last book was about con artists. So I had a lot of um, practice tracking down people who didn't want to be found and also getting people who didn't want to talk to talk um, because I needed them for the book. Um, Now, Eric actually was much easier because Eric's on Twitter and I reached out to him on Twitter. Um, I did not know him. I didn't know anyone in poker. I came to this cold um, and I had decided that he was going to be the person who was going to coach me. Nice. I get it. Oh, like some serious manifesting your destiny there because yeah. you picked a guy who's like the quietest dude too and it somehow worked out it's awesome right and I had like I, I could talk about luck you know we've we've talked about it a few times now but I got so lucky I had no idea what an awesome person he was like I had no I didn't know any of this about him all I knew was oh like I just looked at kind of the Hendon mob and a li- lifetime earnings and I saw, oh, this name keeps popping up. This guy has been around for how many years? Since the 80s? Holy shit. No one. And then I tried to look, is there anyone else like that? The answer was no. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I was like, oh, and he's the visor guy from Rounders, of course. <laughs> <laughs> you got so, this is one spot where I say you got so lucky because if you look through other old school pros, like say that you didn't do a good enough job in your research of like who you wanted to hit up. Yeah. How many pitfalls did you avoid? Oh my god! There's oh so many people my who've god! Stolen money, who've scammed, who just can't beat the game anymore. Like it yeah. is crazy that you pick like the nut person the first yeah. time. No, so and I like the yes, absolutely. Like the the <laughs> he's the goat in every respect. Mm-hmm. He's also like the most ethical person ever. Mm-hmm. Like he's just he's amazing in every way. But anyway, so I just reached out to him and I was like, hey, I'm a writer for the New Yorker. You know, here's like here's a link to the stuff I've written. You know, but here, the books I've written, I'm working on my next project. Um, I'd love to talk to you about it. I think it's something that um, might be of interest to you. Um, And he actually wrote back um, and he said, "Um, sure, you know, I like your writing. Um, I'm happy to talk. And he happened to be in New York at the time. I didn't realize that he spent any time in New York. I thought he just Mm -hmm. lived in Vegas. In my mind, all poker players (laughs) live in Vegas. (laughs) I mean, that was kind of a... Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, don't you live in the casino? Like little cubbies with a, (laughs) um, actually I think some people would, if they could set up a tent with a sleeping bag, they, they probably would. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so we ended up meeting for breakfast, um, in New York and I just, I told him what I wanted to do. I told him my background. I was like, I'm a writer. Um, I have a PhD in psychology. I actually studied decision-making. I studied, you know, risky decision-making. This is why I became interested in poker. I really want to learn about, you know, the limits of chance and control. I want to learn the difference between what I can control and what I can't. I want to learn to make better decisions. Um, And I think he was really intrigued by the premise Mm -hmm. because, he doesn't take students, but I'm not, it wasn't like I was a poker player being like, can you coach me? I was like, I don't know anything about poker. And I actually committed a a major faux pas right away. I was like, well, you know, I know that there are 54 cards in a deck, but that's about it. And you should just see his face. Like he will. That's great. People people think that I made it up, but I'm like, no. And he's like, no, she didn't make it up. (laughs) And it was one of these, he's like, um, so 52, but, uh, and uh, he, That's it was awesome. just one of these moments where I, I just, I wanted to crawl under the table. I was like, oh my God, he's never going to want to. But, but he still, uh, he still jokes about it. He still says, you know, one day the deck will have the jokers and I'm just going to become champion of the world. When, yeah, maybe when you're just ahead of your time, you know? <laughs> I'm just ahead of my time. Yeah. The next iteration of the game is going to have the jokers in the deck. Just wait, just wait yeah. and see. Um, so, so I actually, you know, I was a blank slate and I was a blank slate with a psychology background. And I think that that was really interesting to him because it was one of these things where it was almost like a test of philosophy. Mm-hmm. Like, can the psychological approach still win? Like, can you actually get good if you just think well and if you know people and if you actually kind of approach it from those angles? Because, you know, I told him and I, I was very honest. I was like, look, I took my last math class in high school like, mm-hmm. I, and I haven't used math ever. Like, I don't know. And he, t- he, he said, you know, it's, that's fine. Um, you know, as long as you can add, subtract, multiply, divide. And I was like, oh, well. <laughs> And I might have to brush up on that. But anyway, he said, you know, the math isn't as important. But it was really, I think, intriguing to him whether he could train someone, you know, who wasn't going to be in Solverland. I ended up in Solverland, but but that's Mm -hmm. another story. Um, And I think it was, it's also the other component. It's what we talked about earlier. He loves poker. He Mm -hmm. really loves the game. And I think he liked the fact that I'm, uh, you know, I'm not of the poker world. I'm a writer whose audience um, and whose fans aren't poker players. Mm-hmm. Like my, my platform isn't poker. You know, it's New Yorker readers. It's psychology. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's a totally different world. To love poker. And then can you spread that to people? Exactly. Who maybe have interest or, yeah, exactly. And I think that he was intrigued at that possibility. And even then he didn't necessarily say, yes, follow me around for the next year. Let's do this. <laughs> it's going to be fun. He said, you know, let's try it out. Let's see if we get along. Let's see if we, you know, if we mesh and it ended up just working out really well, we ended up getting along really well, being on the same wavelength, like the way that he thought actually made sense to me and um, was incredibly helpful. And um, we, you know, 
and it ended up working out. And I was, and I'm also, and this makes sense. I mean, I was going to say, I'm I'm very lucky that he has such a great family. Of course he has a great family. Like someone like that has to have a great family because (laughs) that was, you know, he raised his daughters and he chose his wife. to get through um, the poker world unscathed to, to still be a good person after decades. Like, cause poker was not, yeah. poker was the wild west 30 years ago. So for him to get through that and still be a good person and have his ethics and morals and everything, yeah. like he definitely, you know, he had a good support system. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think he uh, and Rua, Rua is his wife. Um, I think they've been married. I, I don't want to lie, but I think it's something like 36 years. Like it's, wow. it's, over 30 years for sure. Somewhere between 32 and 36. Sorry, I don't remember, guys. <laughs> I apologize for not fact-checking. I don't remember. Um, but yeah, it was it was really nice that they were all so open because otherwise I don't think it would have worked because I basically just inserted myself into their life um, for a long time. <laughs> You, I mean, you definitely, you had this, you've had this kind of like zero to 60, literally transformation or, you know, trajectory in poker. I don't think anybody's had the path you've had, you know, where you've just gone from literally nothing to, you know, crushing. And hey, uh, I knew how many cards were in a deck. Come on, Marley. Yeah, that's true. You didn't go nothing. You didn't go I knew you there were like 54 cards, <laughs> 54 cards. Yeah. I mean, I mean, obviously you got lucky. You were lucky to have met him. You were lucky to get sponsorship. You were lucky, yeah. all these things, but how there's so much out there. There's so much training material. So many people, how possible do you think it is for somebody to get good fast and like become an elite player fast these days? I mean, I think it's possible if you have a few things. I mean, first of all, like, let's not understate the fact that my hand analysis conversations are with Eric Seidel, that when I needed like a more mathy stuff, he sent me to Phil Galfond. When I needed to figure out how to use solvers eventually, Jason Kuhn set up PO Solver for yeah, me. This is not yeah. a bad cast told me, <laughs> and told me exactly which bet sizings to use and which inputs to use, and mm-hmm. like taught me to do it correctly so that it would help me rather than hurt me. You know, yeah, of course. Who like when I, you know, I'm not quite sure what I did with this hand. Can text I Caxton and be like, hey, yeah. will you do? <laughs> will you talk to me? And I can be like, yeah, sure. So. So yeah. the fact that Eric was actually the one who introduced me to that world made everyone incredibly helpful, right? Because everyone loves Eric. And yeah. and these are good guys. Like everyone I've just named are also people who love poker and mm-hmm. who want to spread it. And they really wanted to help. They were excited. They wanted to make me good. And so I had this like all-star team, you know, <laughs> rooting yeah. for me. And at the beginning, you know, the first poker books I ever read were Harrington on Hold'em. And then Dan Harrington and I had a lesson one-on-one yeah, where we went so through cool. Harrington on Hold'em. Like that, let's not underestimate that. You're making me want to pretend I'm writing a book so I can like hit these guys up and be like, hey, listen. And I'll just like run a bunch of hands by them. They're so like, what's your book about? I'll tell you later. It's a huge secret. <laughs> like I, I've surprisingly found that like, maybe not to that level, but like, I feel like most people in poker are really want to help especially like you know there's some people out there looking to stake people looking to coach people and they're just looking for students who want to learn there's there's really a lack of people in poker I feel like amateurs who really are just like humbling themselves like it's like you did you really kind of you know you played it by his rules. He told you, you know, basically he wouldn't even tell you if you played a hand good or bad in the beginning. And like, this is true. Under to yourself. Yeah. And I, and I think that like, that's so kind of rare. And I think there's so many teachers, you know, we just had Jesse Sylvia on who's Uh great and he's, you know, a coach and a, and a staker. And like, I just have heard so much from these people, like they're looking for students like you. And like, I, I just kind of think that maybe, I don't know. People, people could learn a lot from like your approach to it in the beginning. I just think I, I think that that's really important. Um, yeah. To to be willing to learn and to want to learn, and so I think having the motivation actually is 
incredibly important. So to go back to your original question, you know, do I think that someone can do it even without Eric Seidel and all these people? Um, I think yes, if you're motivated and if you're willing to work your ass off. Like for for the beginning, you know, when I was starting out and for like the first year, I was just living and breathing poker. You know, yes, I have a lot of interests. Yes, I do a lot of things. I went on leave from The New Yorker. I actually stopped, like I left this magazine to study and play poker all the time because I knew that if I wanted to get good, that's what it would take. And so it was seven days a week and it was, you know, eight, nine, 10 hours a day, sometimes longer of studying, of reviewing, of playing. But when I wasn't playing, you know, actually just actively working, you know, I would watch a run at once video. And one of those videos that was like an hour long would take me three hours to watch because I would stop. I would take notes. I would, you know, write down questions. I would go back to make sure I was really understanding everything. Um, like it, it was a lot of really active learning. And I think that if you're willing to do that, Mm-hmm. I think you can get good, but I think a lot of people aren't willing to do that. They think that there are shortcuts. And I found that with everything there aren't, with writing, there aren't shortcuts. You have no idea how many people will like email me and be like, hey, can you give me your editor's name at the New Yorker? So um, I want it. And I'm like, well, where have you written? And they're like, well, nowhere, but I think this would be perfect for the New Yorker. I'm like, well, let's, <laughs> let's start, you know, one yeah. step at a time. Um, you need to, you need to kind of it was years. I pitched the New Yorker for years before they accepted something. I, I think people have like a sense of entitlement or, or a feeling that like I'm unique and special and they'll see it. But yeah. like the most important part, I would think, and I'm definitely talking about out of my ass right now, but like is being able to work hard. So if you are a worker, you'll have a resume that shows it that Absolutely. you've like busted your ass somewhere else. And like what magazine's going to hire you being like, cool, you wrote one good story. Maybe that yeah. story took you two years and you're not going to be helpful at all and you won't be able to like do this again. I think having a resume of like, hey, I busted my ass, like I earned this and I'm not, in, I'm not coming with you, coming at you with like an entitled feeling. Like that's yeah. probably super helpful. It is, it is. Hello, friends. It's time for an exciting message from our sponsors at Run It Once. If you're not already playing on Run It Once Poker, there's no better time to start than right this moment so that you can take advantage of our newest promo, Bankroll Builder, an exclusive offer for first-time depositors. If you make your first-ever deposit on Run It Once Poker at any point from now until June 30th, we'll toss a free 10 euro into your account. Plus, we'll double our usual 100% first deposit bonus of up to 600 euro, and you'll get up to two months of free access to all essential tier content on Run It Once Training, the biggest and baddest poker training site on the web. For full details, head to once.run slash bb and start building that bankroll. And as if that's not enough reason to join Run at Once Poker, from now until June 28th, we're also running a weekly leaderboard program where you can battle it out for over 10,000 euro in prizes. Every week, we'll feature three No Limit Hold'em leaderboards and four Pot Limit Omaha leaderboards broken down by specific stakes, with the top five places on each board receiving a cash prize at the end of the week. Jump over to Once. Dot run slash LB for full details. And now, back to the pod. You know, it's actually a similarity, and I write about this in, in The Biggest Bluff, between writing and poker, that just like everyone who approaches me is, is like, oh, I've got this great book idea, you know, I just... Um, you know, I think it's going to be great. It's going to be a bestseller. Like, everyone, everyone thinks they can write because mm-hmm. everyone can speak and everyone can write. And so they think that they can write a book. They think that they can write. And it's the exact same thing for poker. And everyone, you know, approaches Eric and says, you know, I'm a better player than all those other guys and I could be great. I've just never had the opportunity. So why don't you stake me for this big tournament? And Mm -hmm. and suddenly like, if I get that one chance, I'll be great. And there's just this misconception for both that it's really easy and that it's really easy to be good. Um, But it takes a lot of work. But I think that if you work hard and if you're actually willing to put in the time, there's so many good resources right now. I mean, I was, I used run it once religiously. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I, I know that the rake is, is a run it once podcast, but Phil, I mean, Phil has his own chapter in my book. You know, there's I wanted a- to ask you about it. He yeah, gave please. Some pretty interesting advice. I thought like, 
he said that you shouldn't, you know, and, and it really resonated with me. Like he was said, you know, you, you can either choose the fast track or the right track basically. Yeah. And the fast track is basically learning rote and all these things. And, you know, it's interesting because you didn't have the time to kind of do the, maybe the long track and kind of maybe, cause I feel like to do the long track, you have to really just have so much time like practicing and, that's right. And so that's why I ended up playing seven days a week or studying yeah. seven days a week and having these insanely long days, which to be fair, I don't think is a great way to do it. You know, I think that you need to have breaks. Um, but I had to put so much into such a congested, congested, <laughs> condensed, <laughs> congested too, if you're in a casino, yeah. <laughs> such a condensed period of time that that's why I was doing, you know, I was basically trying to make it count and trying to get in years in, in months. Yeah. Um, and so, and so, yeah, he did, you know, I think it was a really, it was a wake up call though when he, when he told me that because I met him pretty early in my poker journey and, you know, he learned that I wanted to play the main event and he was like, hold up a second, you know, <laughs> I think that. <laughs> He's like, I, I think, I think you have some work to do. He's like, sure. I can teach you like which cards to play. You can memorize these range charts. I can like tell you what to do and then you're not really going to get into too much trouble. Um, mm -hmm. But he's like, but you're not going to be a good player. You're not going to be able to think for yourself. You're not going to like the game. Like it's not actually going to make you into someone who can really succeed. Mm -hmm. It's like, we can probably get you to cash in the main event. Probably, you know, if, if things go well, at least you won't punt your chips off. I did anyway, but, but that's another story. <laughs> Um, but, but yeah, it was a really, it was kind of a wake up call when he, when he kind when he said that he wants me, that he thinks that I have the right mind for the game, but only if I choose to learn it the right way. And it was, it was very nicely framed. Like Phil is not someone who's ever mean to anyone, but it was, um, but it was one of these things where like there was a little bite to it, like do this well, do this right. You know, this is, yeah, a great, he's this not is ready to game. like crush your dreams, but he's ready to like give you a heavy dose of reality that like, exactly. Hey, you're not going to be casually writing magazine articles and watching videos half ass and, and get good at this. Like he gave exactly. you the real truth. Exactly. He did. He did. And so did Eric actually, you yeah. know, one of the things that Eric, I think, that I also got very lucky with him is I remember my first trip to Vegas. Um, he was playing in the high rollers at the Aria, like the 25 K's and the 50 K's. Um, and there was, there's the Aria dailies, um, you know, and I was like, Oh, 120 bucks. I'll, I'll jump into that. And he was like, are you fucking kidding me? No, he didn't actually say, are you fucking kidding me? That's something that I say. That's not something that Eric says. Yeah. So I just put those words in his mouth. He just actually said, no, like just, just no. And I was like, why? He's like, it's way too expensive for you. Like, I want you crushing $30 tournaments before you. He's like, $120 is a lot. And those players are good. Like you, so he wouldn't let me play. And I got really mad at him. Um, and I was very upset because I didn't want to go to the golden nugget. That's so smart though. Cause I, I think a lot of people get kind of screwed by getting good offers right away. Like, um, yeah. I think getting offers to be able to play extensive tournaments, like if you're in the poker community and you're a friendly person and you're, um, you're known as like a smart person, people will take shots on you. And I remember getting a shot to play a 1K when I was playing like $20 tournaments online. There was a live 1K. My friend's like, of course you should play it. Like you're doing well online. Like uh, I'll put you in. You could just have like a 30% free roll. And I was like, holy shit, badass. I'm like, awesome. I go there and I play the 1K. I get my ass handed to me. And then the, the idea of playing a hundred dollar nightly kind of lost its luster in my mind. Cause I was like, well, I just had this shot to win a hundred K in a day. Yeah. Now it doesn't feel sexy to win three K if I win this nightly. I think getting fast track to um, getting opportunities can actually really screw up your poker brain and like the track you should be on and the things that should feel like a big deal. If you get to play the main event right away, then it next year in the sucks. summer, when you get a chance to play WSP one K, it doesn't feel as cool as it should. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted to pivot a little bit to mm. maybe, I, I, you know, I, I think we all kind of hate the kind of questions we, we, me and Jamie were talking about this before you came on about like, Oh, what's it like being a woman in poker? Like, I, so I don't want to ask <laughs> the that worst question. interview question. <laughs> <laughs> it's the worst, but I, but you did talk about like, just, you didn't realize how much you would internalize these gender roles before yeah. you started playing poker and how much you kind of had to work to like 
get rid of those. And, and it's interesting because I kind of feel like women kind of fall into two categories. And I first started playing, I was like a maniac blaster and you seemed like you tended more to wait, pause. I like how you said I was, (laughs) (laughs) I was, Imagine how I am now, multiply yeah. times a thousand. That's, I was just like, blast, blast, blast. Dude. I commentated your cash games. You can't hide from me. That's true. Um, I was guys, do you want? do you want me to walk out of the room for a little bit? You guys can. I'll just go ahead and mute myself. Pretend I'm not here. So, so yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, what was that like? And how did you, how did you, get rid of those tendencies. Yeah, it was, it was a wake up call. Um, when I realized that I had, because I, you know, I'm someone who's had success in a different area. Right. And so, and I, I kind of thought that like, I'm a pretty confident female that I'm, you know, all for, you know, female power and that I kind of, that I know how to stand up for myself. Um, and I just got like a dose of reality in poker when I realized all of a sudden, you know, I'm out of my comfort zone. I'm in this completely new environment mm-hmm. and I find myself being bullied and like being, being okay with it, being like, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Like, I guess I don't know what I'm doing. I guess, you know, like, I guess you must have a strong hand. I'm just going to fold. Like, I don't want confrontation. I'm just going to fold. I'm going to be passive. I'm just going to check because I don't want you to not like me. I don't want you to think that I'm mean because I'm raising (laughs) and all of these things. And when I had, like, when I realized what I was doing, it was like a holy shit moment. Like, really? Like, that is not, that's not good. And I also had this kind of this false impression that being more passive was safe, right? That at least I couldn't get into trouble. That's not true. You, you know, you, especially in tournaments, you bleed chips. Being passive is not, is not a good strategy. I mean, sometimes you want to be passive, but you need to be passive for a reason and not just passive because you're being passive. And I just, when I saw that I was letting myself be pushed around, um, it was not pleasant like that's it's not a nice thing to realize about yourself you know that that you it's pretty normal Uh, I just had the complete opposite thing like I feel very comfortable in poker I don't feel like I'm the best poker player but I feel very comfortable at the table like Mm -hmm. not putting up with bullshit I just ended up getting an opportunity for a writing job that I felt very unqualified for and felt how you're describing right now where I'm like, I have things I want to contribute, but I'll just be a little mouse in the corner and not anything. And, and it took hours and I was like regretting even going. And I felt like a fish out of water and felt horrible. It took hours for me to like share my opinions and stuff. And I, I don't know, is that a female trait? Do you think that we just I think feel so, yes. like we're, we have the imposter syndrome? We shouldn't be here. We don't deserve this. And then it takes like a lot to get over. I, I felt like you did though. I'm like, oh, I'm super yeah. confident in this one very male dominated area and you can't touch me anymore. Like I'm okay with this. And so I'll be, I'll be okay with any other part of life. And I'm like, I reverted right back to feeling scared as fuck. Yeah. I, I think it is a female thing. Sorry, Marley. What were you no, going to say? I was saying, I agree with Jamie in the fact that just because you master it, I, I feel like, I felt like I had the same thing as like, oh, I master it in one area. So that means like in all areas of my life now, it's just like, alert. it's just like, ta-da I'm doing it now (laughs) but like I'm that way with like business too like my dad's always telling me like you need to ask for more money like you need Mm -hmm. to do this like you need to fucking do this and he's always pushing me to ask for more ask for more ask for more and I'm so timid with business like I can't I can't you know I I can raise somebody if I'm in a pot I can just start blasting Mm -hmm. on them but when I'm like in a business meeting or I'm negotiating negotiating is the worst because like we I feel like it's that is a small trait you want people to like you and you don't want to be pushy but then also it bothers me when there are qualified women getting paid less than men and from the outside I'm like that's a shame they should negotiate for more and then when it's me I'm like I don't want to negotiate I want this person to like me because we're gonna have a business relationship it's crazy yep absolutely absolutely but it's something you know I think I've never I mean, I'm sure there are some men like that, but I think it is something that's more female because of social conditioning, um, because of you know the fact that we live in a society that's male-dominated yeah. um, and that we've had to kind of acquire these sorts of survival instincts that are actually smart. It's smart 
to actually be passive and be nice because you're going to get more because negotiating while female is hard. Um, and I, I remember I, I wrote this piece for the New Yorker a number of years ago and in it, I um, followed this woman who was offered a tenure track job in a philosophy department at a liberal arts college. And she had written to ask about certain parts of the offer. And it wasn't like, give me more money. It was, you know, oh, I was wondering more about like your personal leave policy and like blah, 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 all these things. And they rescinded the offer. They just took it away. They said, we don't think, we no longer think you're a good fit. And what? can you imagine that happening to a guy? Like, I'm sorry. I, I, really- I can't imagine that exact scenario. That's like one where you think that, they they will be like they'd be woke about it, right? No, nope. and they and they were arts college. Like that's so sad. And they weren't, and they weren't, and they she lost the offer. And you know, my my piece was about kind of the pitfalls of negotiating while female. Like on the yeah. one hand, you want to be strong. On the other hand, people don't like it, and p- people yeah. perceive it negatively, and you're not even going to get the job. And it's really really difficult. So I think we've internalized a lot of these lessons because we've had to. It's not that women are inherently more passive or inherently this or inherently that. No, it's that society has actually taught us a lot of these things. Um, but I also think that society has taught us some stuff that's really really useful in negotiation and in poker. So we're used to listening and to picking up on very subtle social cues because we have to, like that's a survival mode, right? You have to be more in tune. You have to know what's going on. Whereas men can be clueless and loud and still get their way. If, if women are clueless, it's not going to be good. And so in poker, that can actually be incredibly helpful because I think we pick up on stuff. Um, we don't have as much ego in the game, a lot of the time and we can kind of see things that other people will miss because we're used to it because we're used to picking up on those social cues. Um, and I think that once you realize that, so I ended up um, over time kind of overcoming a lot of my, once you, once you understand what's happening, I think that's the first step towards overcoming it. Um, and so I was able to do that and then to capitalize on some of the things that I think made me better um, to realize, okay, you know, and I also and I also had to realize that certain things just don't fit with my personality. Like even after, you know, I started doing well in poker, even after like, you know, I, I started winning things and making money and like realized and feeling much more comfortable, I still like I I also understood that certain playing styles just didn't mesh with me. Like I can use PO solver and understand why you're supposed to bluff with this frequency here. Um, but it's, and I still like, I mentally understand it, but if I'm not, if I don't feel it, if I like, if it's not like, if I'm not really feeling it, then it's not going to work. Right. Then it's, it's not going to, it's not going to happen. And I just had to make peace with the fact that I'm, you know, I love Vanessa, but I'm not Vanessa. Like I can't play like Vanessa. Vanessa Mm -hmm. is fucking fearless. Like I can't do that. Um, and I think she's she's a brilliant turn, uh, tournament player. She was until she retired from poker. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not her. I can't do that. And if I try to do that, I'm just going to look stupid and it's not going to work. Um, and so I've also become more comfortable just trying to find my own style, my own language, kind of the my own the level of aggression that I'm comfortable with. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I just recently started messing around with solvers. I like I was kind of one foot out the door of poker sort of. And I I've recently was like, I want to play. I don't want to leave a game um, without feeling like I put in some effort. Um, and But it's funny that some people can just accept it. It's like the solver said this. I accept this. It's in my brain. The next time I come to this spot, I will do this thing. Yeah. I find myself like grouping the hands and the flops and being like, why does it bet this and it doesn't bet this? Why does it yeah. use a larger sizing for this and not for that? And I feel like I can't store the information until the, there's like a reason behind it that makes sense to me. And I feel like this that's is a great. huge yeah, that's stumbling great. block though for me where I can't just be like, solver says it, do it. Like I have to generalize it and, and like have have it like be all connected. I can't have like little islands of information yeah. stored. It's kind of but weird. I think that's wonderful. Yeah. Go ahead, I think that's good. That's kind of like, or I think what Phil was saying was like, you can learn solvers by rote too. I think like a lot of yeah. people look at solvers and they try to memorize there's so much shit that can, I think you can get caught and bogged down with with solvers, and I think like that's kind of, that's how I interpreted Phil's advice too. Is like, what's the takeaway? What's yeah. the 
because in game, like I'm never going to remember what my bluff combos are in the spot ever, like, or at the frequencies, or I'm not going to know how much, you know, I'm never going to remember that. So, but like, what can I remember? And like, I was just studying yesterday and like me and Sprague were looking at the solve and I was like, okay, so like, the big takeaway here is when you have a spade, like continue or when you have a spade raise and you don't call. And the reason is this because you have more playability. And so like just having that one takeaway, yep. now I can take that and that's something I can apply to many, like, you know what I mean? So it's, I just kind of think learning how to think and Jamie, I think like, you're right. Like, I don't think even the right way to go about it. Cause sometimes like solvers do wonky things. Well, they're just like, they'll just like, I always need to know why, like that's, yeah. that's where my brain is like broken. And sometimes and, um, it's like the solvers just ridiculous in that spot. Like, yeah, it picks yeah. one hand and does some wild shit with it. And I'm always like, instead of taking the most general point, which I should be like inputting into my brain, I like need to know. I'm like, it leads ace nine, nine. What's Fuck. and like i'm like why is this and i'll spend like 20 minutes thinking about why it leads this one board at some incredibly low frequency instead of looking at the ones where it's like 90 time it's checking in your head just remember it checks here and yeah like, no. you're not gonna have ace nine nine in the spot ever just like stop worrying about it <laughs> i feel like it's like a perfectionist thing and it's like it is making it very hard for me to learn quickly because i need to like master one stupid spot that's like never going to come up. I, I don't know. I have to just get over it. I no, I actually think that your approach, I, I think Marley, you were, you were totally right that this is what Phil was trying to tell me. I think your approach is, is, is the right one because a lot of times people go wrong with solvers because they don't try to figure out why certain things are happening and instead they just memorize. And so they don't, they can't generalize it. They don't understand, you know, why this particular thing happens. Like sometimes you spend days on a hand on one solver output because there's just so much going on there and you have to really figure it out. And then it helps you generalize it to other situations. You can be like, oh, this helps me think about how to choose bluffs in these types of spots. It's so interesting that this is, and it also helps you spot like, oh, I fucked up. My solver inputs must be wrong if the solver is telling me to do this. And sometimes that's the answer, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Like yeah. sometimes you just actually messed up your solve. And if you just do what the solver says, you're never going to see you know, I always, it's it's that common saying, garbage in, garbage out, right? If you put garbage in, your solver's completely useless, and so many people don't know how to use it correctly. So, so I think your approach is the right one. That's actually, I won't do something unless I understand. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's because of Eric, and it's because of Phil, and it's because they made sure that I always, what Phil told me, kind of, I think one of the most important lessons that he taught me over the years is always ask why. Mm. That's your most important question, mm. both about you and about other players. Why? Why are you doing this? Why are they doing it? And the answer isn't because they're stupid or because, I don't know, they're a bad player. They're just blasting off. That's not a reason. Like They, they have a reason for what they're doing, right? They're not just going crazy. Even if that reason is a very stupid one, like I think I can get you <laughs> off the hand, yeah, you know, that's still a reason, right? Or I think you're going to fold or, you know, I just want to win this pot. If you can answer that, those are all reasons. If you can figure out that this is a guy who just blasts off because he wants to win the pot, well, all of a sudden you're calling down really light right? <laughs> because <laughs> you understand that if that's their motivation, then they're capable of anything. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So always ask why is something that I really took away. And I think it applies to solvers too. A solver is not human, but sometimes feels like an asshole. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I've got a lot wanted to let you go in a minute here, but I just wanted to um, ask you, you know, of course, like you said your home motivation for making the book was to get some better control or idea of what you can control mm -hmm. and in real life. Do you want to just talk about... Um, that like the big motivation behind the book and the big kind of life application to the poker learnings. Yeah. So the, I mean, the original reason I even wanted to write this book was because just a lot of bad things happened in my life at the same time. Um, you know, I had like a really bad health scare where I had this weird autoimmune disease. No one knew what was going on, but I just became allergic to everything. Um, like I couldn't go outside because my entire body would just break out in hives. Oh my God. I just reacted to everything. It was awful. Um, 
And I was on these just like horse doses of steroids. So I was just falling asleep all the time. Um, it was, it was not, not pretty. And I was going to all these doctors and no one knew what was going on. Um, around the same time as this was happening, my grandmother died um, and she'd been perfectly healthy. She just slipped in the night and hit her head. Oh, no. So it was just like so this. Um, thank you. Thank you. It was a, a number of years ago, but it was still like, it was still shocking. Like we didn't get a chance to say goodbye. She lived by herself. Like she was perfectly like, you know, she was making bread the the day before she died. Like there was still, you know, she uh, was definitely, um, it was one of these things where like, it was just a freak accident, right? Had she not like put her foot wrong, Mm -hmm. like alive. Um, My mom lost her job. My husband lost his job. So like all of these things happening. And it just made me realize like, wow, you can work really, really hard. And then there are just these things that you have no control over. Like, you know, we take so much for granted on a day-to-day basis. And then just like that, it's not there. And you you don't even know what happened. And there was nothing you could do about it. Like the health, the health thing, I was like, well, you know, I do yoga every day. I meditate. I'm, I eat healthy. I, you know, I eat all my own food. Like I cook all the time, you know, all of these things, you know, I, how is this happening? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I do everything I can and, but it doesn't matter. Like you can still get some weird shit happening to your body. It's not like, it's a guarantee that if you take good care of your body, you're not going to get sick, right? You minimize your chance. prepared you so hard for MTTs. It's crazy. (laughs) All that stuff is so much worse, right? Than just being like, I was cruising. I had a massive stack and then I got aces to Kings and he hit a King. You're just like, whatever. Like I've experienced this hundred thousand in real life. Yeah. Well, that's so, so that was my motivation for the book because I wanted to kind of explore that and explore the role that chance plays and to become comfortable with this kind of X factor in our lives. And poker is such a good tool for that because poker, you really, it's such a clean environment, right? Real life is so noisy. There's so much going on that it's really hard to figure which variables am I really in control over? Why did this happen? It's so easy to like blame something else, um, something bad happens, and to not learn the lesson, so to speak, because the feedback is messy. Poker is a game. Like poker is much more simplified. You know, there are only so many. Sorry, your dog keeps walking back oh. and forth. It's so cute. <laughs> he, he usually tries to be on the podcast. Like when me and Marley do it in person. He sits in the middle of us and falls asleep 100% of the time. As soon as I say, we're going to go do the podcast, he's like, okay. So I think he's, you know, he's probably missing. Very cute. Crouton, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good. I got the name right. (laughs) Um, So that makes me hungry. Anyway. (laughs) So so, um, in poker, you know, because it's like it's simplified, it's a great model and it's a great way to learn because you know exactly what you're controlling and what you're not controlling, right? You're not controlling the next card off the deck. You don't know what the runout's going to be unless you've marked the deck and you're cheating. You like, <laughs> you don't know what the cards are. Um, so we're going to put that aside. Cards. Maybe right. you're, you know, you're adding a couple of <laughs> cards and there's 54 and only you know it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So let's assume a clean game. <laughs> then it's, <laughs> it's very clear that you don't control that. And you obviously don't control the cards that you're dealt or that anyone else has. What, what are you controlling? Well, you're controlling the actions that you take, right? The decisions that you make, how you're reacting to other people, how you're interacting with them. Are you letting them get to you? How you're controlling your emotions, like how you're controlling your reactions to winning or losing and to being raised to feeling like you're this person's three betting me every single hand. They're really t- taking it out on me. Well, let me show you. I'm going to just rip it in here with seven deuce offsuit. No. <laughs> That I mean, maybe, but uh, (laughs) but why? Right? Ask the why and figure out what you're doing because that's what you you can control. That you can control those actions and reactions, but you don't control the other players, and you don't control the cards. And sometimes you can make the best decision possible, and you end up losing. Like I've gotten my money in as a 98% favorite and lost. We've that we've all done that, right? That's happened. Um, as a 99% favorite. Yes, you know, there, that perfect run out comes where you flopped the nut full house and then it comes runner, runner, royal flush. And you're like, my ace is full, just got, uh, just got, <laughs> got cracked. What were the chances? Not high, but that happens. And you, 
but you'd still get your money in every single time, right? Like that, you'd still make the same decision over and over and over because usually you're going to win. And even if you're going to win 75% of the time, you still make that decision over and over and over. And 25% is a lot. It's a hell of a lot, right? (laughs) Even 10% is a lot. And sometimes 10% can feel like 100%. So, So sometimes you just, you feel like the world's against you, but you have to just learn to focus on the things that are within your control and to not expend brain power or emotional energy on those other things. Like Eric taught me very on early on, one of the only times that he even got close to yelling at me was when I tried to tell him a bad beat story. And <laughs> he just said, like, he said, I never, you are not allowed to tell me a bad beat ever. I don't want to hear it. Unless you have a question about how you played the hand, I don't want to know about it. That's all I want to know. And it's so powerful. It's so effective because yeah, if you don't dwell on it, then it also doesn't poison you. Right. Mm-hmm. He had this wonderful sentence. He said that, you know, telling someone a bad beat story is like putting your trash on their lawn. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> I think I that's like a good it. way of looking at it. Yeah. And it's just a good way to stop focusing on what, what you were saying is the stuff you can't control. It's yeah. it's also incredibly boring. Like I'm I'm in chat groups where we'll like shame people if they send a bad beat story because it's like it's like they're assuming that this doesn't happen to other people, that this isn't like an inherent part of the game. And and it is a boring thing to talk about. You could have taught me something, told a joke, sent a dog picture. There's a million things you could do besides <laughs> telling people that you're unlucky that day. That would be infinitely more interesting. Yeah. Can I tell you guys about the time my aces got cracked to, ju- to just uh, finish off the podcast? <laughs> I think it's a great all. story and it's it's never happened to anyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this um, has been super interesting. I feel like this pod could be like three hours because yeah. you're you're a great storyteller even when you're not writing. You're just well, thank you. I appreciate that. You guys are wonderful. You Aww. ladies are wonderful. Um, <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm so glad that we had a chance to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, yeah um, and and tell people about your book. Let's yeah. plug the book coming out. I think this will come out right when your book is coming out. So, <laughs> the biggest bluff. Some awesome advanced quotes that I was very happy with. Beautiful book. I just got it today. This oh, is wow. <laughs> so I'm very I'm very happy <laughs> to have it. Um, and. Yeah, it's out June 23rd, um, and I hope you guys will like it. Yeah, I'm sure we'll like it. I'm excited. I've, I got to read a little. It made me feel very cool that you let us read some stuff in advance because of I've course. never gotten to like read something in advance before it came out, so I feel very, very fancy today. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, you should feel very special. Um, you know, it's, yeah, you just, I, I hope you feel blessed. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. And yeah, uh, yeah, cool. I look forward to um, hanging out with you one day in person when we're allowed to see humans. Oh again. my God, one day, right? Yeah. <laughs> Back in the real world. Mm-hmm. Thanks again for coming on. Of course. Thank yeah. you both so much. All right. All right. Take, take care. Everybody. Bye.